Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you again. Welcome to River Tree. We're going to be in, jumping into God's Word here in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 21, here in just a second. But I wanted to just say uh, just a quick um, thank you, and, and we're aware of just how sweet the last few Sundays have been. Really, since the first of the year, uh, attendance at both campuses has just been special, uh, and as people have come, and uh, it's just really that that... that Feeling full, uh, people in the room, uh, people leaning in, listening, get involved in the life of the church has, has really been great. And just, uh, there's a, uh, we put in uh, some new cushion chairs in the overflow space at, uh, at the Cove campus. So, you know, we were trying to help that environment for those that are sitting in there this morning at the downtown campus, uh, took out a section of the stage. Uh, it's a modular stage. So they took out the front section so they could add another row of seats there. And they're adjusting some speakers and getting some things re, uh, resituated there. So like we we know people are coming, we see you. And we're just so grateful uh, that you would uh, give your time to this community and uh, to what we're trying to do in the city. And um, I, I, I want to share, hopefully in the next few weeks, even even more things that we're just so excited about. Uh, things the way the end of the year wrapped up and the, the giving was so generous and what that could signal for us as a church of where we're going to be going in the next few months and the end of the year. Uh, and so thank you. Thanks for coming. Uh, it's an exciting time at River Tree and, and you guys help make that uh, what it is when you're here and serving and giving and uh, just in each other's lives the way you are. I just really believe the Lord is using it and some very special ways and want to see how that's going to continue. So Matthew's gospel, Matthew 21, if you're new with us, we've been making our way through Matthew's gospel uh, really for some time. And the context of where we are within this section of scripture is in this last week of Jesus ministry that we call the Passion Week. So Jesus has already gone into Jerusalem, uh, the triumphal entry, uh, the hosannas and the palm branches and the save us uh, kind of comments and cheers from the crowds have already been given. He's made his presence known in the temple by what we call the cleansing of the temple as he overturned the tables of the money changers, as he stopped the selling of sacrifices. And so Jesus has already made a, a I mean, a, a big splash, a huge impact into this last week. And really now we see him in the temple. And he's in the temple, kind of in these next few days, what we're going to look at in the next few chapters of Matthew, and the religious leaders are engaging him. Uh, they're absolutely furious at what Jesus has already done. And so their questions and their comments that they're bringing to Jesus are meant to discredit him. Uh, they're, they're either meant to get him in trouble with Rome, that somehow Jesus would kind of assert and reveal his identity as what he believes is what, you know, as the Messiah, the Christ, Israel's king, which would get him in trouble with Rome and Caesar and Pontius Pilate, or they want to undermine him and trip him up snag him within the scriptures, uh, make him look uh, irresponsible with God's word, and so diminish his influence and popularity with the crowd. So that's where we are. And in the middle of this, Jesus is bringing challenge uh, after challenge. Like he is, I really believe, he is bringing the audience, the religious leaders and those listening, to a decision point in everything that he's saying. In other words, what will you do with Jesus' words? Like he, he doesn't leave you neutral. You're going to see that in the passage that he talks about today. Jesus doesn't leave us in a place where we are allowed to stay neutral with his words and his challenge. So in verse 33, Matthew, Matthew 21, Jesus is sharing a parable and he says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. 
And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? The religious leader said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. Jesus said to him, said to them, have you never read this in scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So Jesus tells this story about tenants, about a landowner, and it was common practice for a landowner to have a piece of land and to lease it out, to have tenants living there, and for those people to kind of grow those crops, to share in the harvest, right? But a portion of that, first portion, would go to the owner. Uh, it, it's not uncustomary in our day, too, you know, that you would see someone kind of living on a farm or farming it and not be the, the owner of that. And so the problem with the parable, and, and you see it right away, the problem is the tenants on the property are acting like owners. The tenants are acting like owners. And it's in this parable, right, as Jesus is telling it, right, it takes this turn where you realize the tenants are kind of believed that they're in charge. They believe that they're in authority. My, my family, uh, my mom's side of the family had some property up around Lynchburg, Tennessee. And it was, it was the family farm for a lot of years. And I remember it as a kid uh, going up and, and seeing the farm. And uh, my mom spent a lot of time there. But sure enough, they, my, her family lived uh, just north of Nashville. And so they had, uh, like others, tenant farmers, people that would live on the property, uh, would, would farm the land and would harvest the crops. And then a portion of that, right, would, would go to the owner. But the story that began to circulate was the current tenants. So these particular tenants weren't good tenants. They weren't taking care of the property very well. In fact, the, the rumor was that there were um, uh, roosters that were being raised on the property uh, for uh, Friday night fights and entertainment. So a little gambling ring going on on my mom's uh, property, family property. And, and sh the story is that the family went to go visit the tenants uh, to find out what really the issue was. And sure enough, it was just like they said. And my mom sees the tenant farmer, the man uh, kind of out on the tractor in the field. And she, as a young girl, leaves the family car, goes out into the field and lets him know that he is not the owner of this property that what he's doing is wrong. My mom's nickname is Sassy. You can, you can understand why. This idea of feeling like you're in charge, right? That you're the owner. This is what Jesus' parable is, is hitting at. But it strikes a nerve even deeper than that. Because as Jesus is talking about a vineyard, 
A vineyard was a common metaphor, an image that we see in the Old Testament used for Israel. Israel was God's vineyard. And so as Jesus is talking about a vineyard with an owner, with tenants, like the minds of those that were listening would have easily referenced Isaiah chapter 5. I want to show you Isaiah chapter 5 because it contains some of these same similar elements of unfruitfulness. So Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its walls. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Jesus is telling this story about an owner in a vineyard in Matthew 21. And it is echoing, right? You can, you can hear Isaiah chapter 5 coming through. You can hear this lament that Isaiah is expressing about what God wanted from Israel, what God wanted from this vineyard, what he hoped for, but it, it wasn't producing what God was hopeful for. It was wild grapes. It was uncivilized. In fact, it was, there was bloodshed. There was injustice, right? You can hear the grieving nature of the owner. And, and this is what becomes kind of even more forefront is Jesus is saying now, with Israel as this Isaiah chapter 5 vineyard backdrop. Now he brings it to the religious leaders and says the same bloodshed, the same injustice, the same judgment is coming for you and you're the tenants. You're the ones who've been left in charge. You're the shepherds of God's people. And so there's a, a consequence coming, a, a judgment coming. This is what Jesus is saying. God has sent messengers God sent messengers. And he did that actually throughout the whole Old Testament. You, you hear that. There are, constantly, God was sending prophets who were rarely received to call the people of God back to repentance, to remind them of, their, of who God was and his authority and the role in their life. And we see this. Elijah was driven out in the wilderness. Isaiah, tradition holds that he was killed. Zechariah was stoned. Even more present to Jesus, John the Baptist beheaded. Messenger after messenger after messenger, God coming. And we see this, again, the owner in the parable even sends his son. Jesus says he's going to send his son. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will they do to those tenants who received the son and killed him? Right? And then the religious leaders, as if they trapped themselves, it's a, it's a strange thing. They, the religious leaders, hear Jesus' parable and respond. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and give the vineyard to other tenants. 
Luke's gospel also has the same parable that Jesus tells. And in Luke's gospel, it adds this other element of um, they get to the end of the story and, and Jesus says, what will happen to the tenants? And the religious leaders respond, well, they're going to be disposed of. They're going to be killed. And then the crowd in Luke's gospel says, may it not be. God forbid. Surely not. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. They know he's talking about a judgment coming. They know he's talking about the role that you've had, the, the role of stewardship that's been given to you. It's going to be given to someone else. You've produced no fruit. You've only given unrighteousness, injustice. You, you've, sought, you've seen yourselves as the ones in authority and you're not. And all of this is going to be replaced. This is all going to get removed. A new group, a new people, a new nation of repentant fruit bearers is coming in. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. And as he tells the story and as he kind of calls into account the religious leaders, he calls us to. As he brings an accountability upon the religious leaders in Jesus' day, he also brings a certain accountability to our lives too. He, as he reveals them, he reveals us. He reveals us as well. All of us, uh, studies have been shown that there's a fundamental, at a fundamental level in all of us is this deep, deep desire to be in control. A, a desire to be in charge. At a fundamental level, we all want to and long to self-determine. This study showed that if there was an ice cream shop a minute from your house with three flavors and there was another ice cream shop 10 minutes from your house with 15 flavors, all of us would travel the extra nine minutes for the extra flavors. <laughs> Amen. Because we like options. I, I like to get what I want to get. I, I, don't, want, I don't want my choices to be limited I want options. I want to be in control. I want to determine to be able to act autonomously, you know, to, to have autonomy to, for my own interests and for my own values to be expressed. Now, I'll tell you, first service, I told a story, an illustration here that a friend afterwards, Michael, buddy, came up to me and says, hey, I got a better story for you about you. Like, you do. So he told me the story. So I'm going to take a risk and tell his story. This is kind of what we do on Sundays. The services can kind of change. You're part of this. You're part of this. So years ago, uh, when the church was still meeting in the cafeteria, uh, we were meeting at Hampton Cove Elementary School. We owned a little office building, a house. Uh, this now a dentist office, kind of around Woodside Drive and kind of along old 431. And we were making the changes to end up in this area to buy this property and, and to build a building. And I knew, I knew that the only resource really that we had of significant value was this house, this office building, and that we were going to need to sell that in order to secure this property, in order to have enough resources. And so I told a buddy on staff that I said, I, I think we should sell this office building. I think we should sell this house. There's, we need to do that in order to, you know, to buy the property on Taylor Road. And so we talked about that. We went out to lunch. We were coming back from lunch. And he says, so are you going to sell the property? I'm like, I guess so. So we stopped at Lowe's on the way back. Lowe's right here. We bought a for sale sign. And I put it a for sale sign in the yard of the church offices. What I didn't realize is, is nobody else knew the church was for sale. 
And as people, church members are coming home, elders are coming home, trustees are coming home, they're driving by the church office and the phone starts ringing. I think it's interested buyers in the church property. And I spoke to one of the elders later. He goes, hey, I, I have an idea for you. Like, you should have probably told somebody before you just stuck a for sale sign in the front of the church offices. And I'm like, you're right. I, I probably should have done that. So that story has died down. Not a lot of people remember that. Now you do. Now you feel free to tease me about things that I might sell at your house. I mean, just come and put a for sale sign in your yard if you need, you know, to move, some, move something. This, this idea of feeling like you're in charge of like, of like the autonomy, the the, the position that we feel like, I just want to make decisions. I want to have choices. This is what Jesus is highlighting. And this sense of self-interest, I'll even call it resistance. Resistance that we have to authority. Paul highlights that in his letter to the Romans. Let me show this. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So here's what Paul is saying. There's something about the natural bent that you and I live in, the way that we're born, that we push back on authority. In fact, Paul is going to say like, we, we, not only do we not submit to God's law, we can't. Like we are opposed to it. This is not we push back uh, because we like to have things done our way. We want to accomplish things when we want to accomplish them. Genesis chapter three, do you remember what the, the essence of the temptation was? As, as the serpent is kind of enticing Adam and Eve with this fruit, do you remember what he said about the fruit? It will make you what? Like God. It'll make you like God. And that sounds pretty good to us. So we realize this deep down inside, each of us desires to be in charge. Each of us desires to do things our way, to self-determine without restriction, to be our own authority. And that's what Jesus is highlighting right here. People seldom say, I hate God. They seldom say that. We operate in more of kind of a, a polite ambivalence. We kind of say things like, God, um, I know you're important. Um, I'll go to church. I'll give a little. I'll serve a little. But like, really, God, at the end of the day, I can take it from here. We're not overtly rebellious to him, but we just quietly just do our own thing. We do enough good things so that we don't feel indebted. We do enough good things for God so that we can kind of do what we want to do. And this is what we begin to see. Not only are we politely ambivalent, but then we also redefine the gospel. I like the gospel as it talks about love and grace and forgiveness. I don't really love that part of the gospel that talks about consequences and obedience. And so we move the gospel to a place where it's just grace. And so then obedience and consequences, they don't really fit in this understanding that we have with God anymore. Those things feel harsh. All of us, all of us deep down love to give orders, right? Not take them. And we affirm this in our culture, like part of our culture is like steeped in this idea of freedom is that you and I would be able to do whatever makes us happy. And so the thought of you and I accumulating enough resources to where we're not beholden to anybody that we can do whatever we want to do. This is something that we all aspire for. This is something that we all enjoy when we feel like we're in control when we're in charge, 
right? This is what we begin to, this is what we begin to look for. This is what we begin. But the problem is God sends messengers. He sends messengers into my life. He sends messengers into yours. And life is filled with those things. It's the messengers that come into your life and my life that remind you that your life is temporary. That your life is really not in control in the way that you thought you were. And there are circumstances that you're experiencing and messengers that come into your life that are meant to show you that there's someone else in charge, that your life is beholden to somebody. Here, you're experiencing some circumstance right now that you're probably pushing back on. And you're saying, God, I need you to change this thing. God, I need you to fix this, this situation, this circumstance. But the truth of the matter is that circumstance may be purpose to fix you, to change you, to bring you to a point again where you go like, God, I'm not in control. What are you doing with the messengers that God is sending in your life right now? How are you receiving them? What are you doing what messages have been sent? I love the passage because what's beautiful about this is that God is giving us more than one chance. He sends messenger after messenger after messenger. God's kindness and mercy are front and center, especially as he sends the son, right? You can hear Jesus even kind of tease out the father's heart. He says, I will send my beloved son. Surely they will respect him. Surely they will hear him. And what do they, they see him. They see the sun, they see the air. Like, finally, let's kill him. Let's have the inheritance. The parable is clear. There's no mistake in who the son is. If they dispose of him, they'll finally be in charge. If they dispose of him, they'll finally be in control. It wasn't a mistake. And yet Jesus, maybe even more clear in this parable than any other, is presenting himself as the son, as the one who sent. He is the final and ultimate messenger. There isn't a greater messenger than Jesus. There isn't a greater moment of God's grace to help us realize who's in control and who's not than Christ. And Jesus is telling this story. He's the one talking about how the son is going to be killed. And Jesus is the one telling the story. In other words, greater than our evil, greater than our rebellion, greater than our resistance is the love of God who continues to come, who continues to be patient, who's not slow as we consider slowness, but he's patient, long-suffering, so that all might come to repentance. We're hearing this, this heart of God that you might know who Christ is. And messenger after messenger comes. How are you responding to those? How are you receiving those? Look what Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 42. He says, have you ever heard or read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And the one that falls on, and if it falls on anyone, it will crush him. As you look at this, Jesus is saying that the final and ultimate messenger is him and that you will either experience grace that comes with Jesus and a recognition of him and his authority, or you will be crushed. 
as your own rebellion and resistance and desire for self-autonomy is determined. You know, this, this idea that you and I would have our lives just like we want them to, that we would be in control, that, that life of freedom, that life of no obligation, as wonderful as that sounds, it's not a life the Bible ever holds up to us as a good life. In fact, the Bible tells us over and over that your life is not your own. That your sexuality isn't your own. That your money isn't your own. That you can't just do whatever you want to do or think about whatever you want to think. That your life has been bought. Your life has a price. That you're a tenant. That your life is meant to steward. And when we don't do that, when we take all the gifts of God, when we take all the messengers and messages that this life reminds us that you aren't in control, when life feels out of control, when life circumstances are constantly swirling around and reminding you that you're not in control, it, that's not an argument against God being God. That's an argument about you being God. And when we live in this disposition where we're just doing what we want to do all the time, self-determining, there's a certain consequence that comes with that. There's a judgment that comes with that. I know if you and I are alike in this, we love with great affection all of those identifiers of God as father and friend, comforter, encourager, right, helper. Like these are all kind of ways in which God connects with, but, but when we get to this idea of God being judge or God being just, right? There's a part of us that, that pulls back on that because that just feels harsh. I'm not sure what to do with it, with God being a judge or, or God being just, right? And this idea that God would judge us means that, well, there's a standard. There's some kind of rule outside of me that I can determine what it is. There's some kind of rule or standard in which my life is going to be judged by. And that, I mean, that, that shocks us. It, it challenges us. But let me ask you a question. Would you rather have a God that doesn't discern between right and wrong, nor cares about it? Would you rather have a God that does not discern the difference between right and wrong and does not care about the difference? Because if we play this out, if God were just overlooking, if God were just passive or God were just lenient, right? Then how could we ever trust him for all the things that have gone wrong and the evil that has been committed in the world and against us? How could we ever do that? That the character of God and that God is a just God guarantees us that at some point, every wrong will be addressed. And why do you need that? Why do you need to know that every wrong will be addressed? Because if not, you'll become a person of revenge. If not, you will take matters always into your own hands. God frees us from being people of retribution, kind of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, always paying somebody back for some mistreatment that we've experienced. God says, because he's just, there is a day, a coming day when all of it will be judged, all of it will be called out for what it is, and every wrong will be righted in that moment. That is good news for us. God being just, God being a judge means at some point, God's will will be done. So the parable 
right? It's this, it's this tragic story. And, and you keep hoping, right? You keep hoping messenger after messenger, the tenants are going to get it. At some point, they're going to turn. At some point, they're going to go like, we, we understand our role. We understand who the owner is. We understand that we're just here. Right? You keep waiting for them to kind of clue in that this thing is happening. And then the sun comes, right? The sun also comes. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus grabs Psalm 118. And he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. But in this moment, he says, there's a greater prophecy working out than your evil. That the very thing that's going to be rejected, the very one that's going to be killed is going to become the cornerstone. And more than just a, a psalm and a prophecy about rejection, it's that Jesus becomes the cornerstone through rejection. He experiences rejection, and in so doing that, he becomes a new foundation for all of our lives. He becomes a new place for God's people to build their life upon. And through his rejection, we see our own sin. We see it. Through the cross, we're, we're dealt with like how, how wicked humanity is. There's never been a greater tragic moment than the killing of Jesus on the cross. As Jesus was killed on the cross, what happens is we can now either receive him and realize he was crushed so that we weren't, he was killed outside the camp so that we could be welcomed into the household, or Jesus says, this judgment of sin, if I don't receive it for you, it stays upon you and it will crush you in the end. Your rebellion will crush you if you don't let me take it. The cornerstone. It's the most important part of the building. It's this cornerstone that had to be hewn perfectly. It's dimensions so specific because every line and every dimension of the building, its beauty, its structural integrity, everything depended upon the cornerstone. And Jesus said, that's me. The stone that the builders rejected, the one that was overlooked, the one that was discarded, that's the one. And through that rejection, Jesus becomes a place where we now can experience acceptance because of his rejection. We can be welcomed in because he was killed outside the camp. What do you do with the messengers? I mean, even to, this morning is a, is a kind of message. Even this morning is another act of God's grace that you and I would be here, hearing this passage, wrestling with the authority of God in our life, trying to understand my own stewardship and am I walking in obedience and reverence? Am I, is my life producing a fruit that God is calling upon or is it something else that I'm determining? Is it something else that I just want to do, right? This is, this is a moment, another moment where we go, God, am I in control or am I submitting to your control? And this is how you know. This is how you know that you're moving towards a right relationship with God. It's when you say to God, God, I, I like being in control. I like being in charge. I like being able to self-determine. But I see Christ on the cross for me. I see the son that was sent, that was killed. And his death on the cross for me all of a sudden begins to reshape that my plans are not the most important plans that I serve a secondary role, 
that, that my life is really beholden to someone else, that, that my life is actually in this place of, well, I'm just a tenant. I'm just a steward of the gifts of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. When you see that, when that begins to shift in your life, then all of a sudden your life begins to change. Jesus says this stone, if you reject it, it will crush you. But if you accept it, if you see Jesus for who he is, then Jesus will wonderfully set the dimensions and the boundary of your life. And why wouldn't you want him to? Why wouldn't you want a God who would send time and time again, be patient, would actually send his son to die so that you wouldn't have to in your rebellion and in your autonomy? Why wouldn't you want Jesus to set the direction of your life, to be your cornerstone? This morning, your life can change as you begin to say, Lord, I've been in charge, but now I see you for what you've expressed, expressed through Jesus. And I accept that. I receive that. I believe that. Be authority in my life. Christianity isn't just about, it's not about doing this or not doing this. Christianity is about embracing the authority and the crownship of Jesus in the throne of your heart. Seeing him for who he is and what he's done and submitting to it and surrendering to it, pledging your life to it. Let's pray. God, this morning, and how do we, how do we move towards this place of willing to admit, man, that we want to be boss, that we want to be in charge, but that we're really a tenant. God, help us to see that this morning, to see Jesus on the cross for us. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for the, the many messengers that each of us have received in our life. Not only, not only today, but life itself reminding us that we are just temporary, that we're not in control. God, would you just express your kindness again in this moment for us to receive you, Jesus, for us to know you, to surrender our lives to you, for Jesus, for you to take the rightful place in our heart, to be crowned. And somehow through it all, realize that it's all been for this. That every circumstance has been worked towards this end for each of our lives, that you've been working all things for the good so that we might know you and that your purposes in our life would be expressed. God, help each person here. I pray that there would be a step of faith and a heart this morning. There's a Jesus, I don't want to be in control anymore. Be over my life. It's yours. I surrender to this mercy that has always been ongoing. I give myself to it. I give myself to you. And I pray this in your name. Amen.